Welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Schipoli, APPA's News Director. Our guest in this episode is Bill Bullitt, who was hired in February by Massachusetts Public Power Utility, Reading Municipal Light Department, as Director of Integrated Resources for the Utility. Bill, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Paul. It's, it's great to be with you here. Um, First that, yeah, we appreciate you taking the time of your day to, to talk to us. Um, so, um, Bill, I just wanted to kind of get our conversation started um, in, in terms of your, your your lengthy career in the energy sector. You, know, you have more than 25 years of experience that you're bringing um, to uh, Reading Municipal Light Department. Could you talk about your career in the energy industry? Yeah, sure. And as a matter of fact, I spent my entire career uh, in the energy industry. And um, believe it or not, I started my career uh, designing coal-fired boilers and it was uh, where I first learned the lesson that there really are no perfect solutions in the energy space. We just need to be, pick the best of imperfect options. So I came into the industry, you know, after Three Mile Island and Chernobyl upended the nuclear power in the U.S. Um, you know, at the time, natural gas was still rare and expensive. So there was a search for safe, reliable, and, you know, what was relatively clean energy. And at the time, that meant Coal. So we had to comply with what we thought was the cleanest uh, form, and that meant complying with the Clean Air Act and its amendments. Um, so we focused on removing the SOx and NOx from emissions. Of course, we were not focused on uh, CO2 at the time. Uh, obviously, a lot has changed in the uh, the decades since. And one one thing to note, you know, this was a very formative experience for me because it was, you know, my first job. It, it kept me anchored in the energy industry. And um, I did have a mentor there. It was a mentor that was very close to the end of his career. Um, he taught me how to do uh, heat balances on coal-fired boilers. Um, and, you know, I was coming into this fresh. Um, I had just uh, graduated from, from college and I knew how to run spreadsheets. Um, so when he showed me how to run a heat balance, instead of wanting to do these uh, calculations over and over again, I said, you know, we could automate this with a with a spreadsheet. And he really didn't know how to do that. So, you know, he taught me how to do heat balances. I taught him how to put it into Excel. And we really created a tool uh, that was very useful in evaluating the performance of boilers. So that, that was how I got my start with sort of an analyzing uh, you know, different options, uh, trying to get to the lowest cost solutions that we could find. And it was really a great example of how mentors and mentees can work together um, and really accomplish a lot. Um, uh, so, you know, when, whenever I have a chance now to work with, um, you know, new hires and uh, fresh people bringing new ideas into the organization, you know, I jump at that chance because they do have a lot to offer or an organization, um, and I carry that with me. So, from working on the uh, the coal fired boilers, I uh, I think got I got interested in um, overall power plant design, and of course, the industry continued to shift after that. And uh, you know, the the abundance of natural gas uh, drove the price of natural gas down. We were able to uh, to start to design. Uh, gas turbine-based uh, combined cycle power plants, and that kind of became the backbone of the uh, of the generation um, uh, sources uh, following, you know, that period. Um, and even today, in in New England, you know, fifty percent of our generation comes from combined cycle 
power plants. Um, so we're still relying on those plants now. And from there, I really got interested in efficiency. So, you know, I went, uh, got my master's degree at Illinois Institute of Technology, and I did a lot of reading about uh, combined heat and power and the benefits. You know, we were always trying to incrementally improve the efficiency of coal boilers, you know, the, the coal boiler cycle from, you know, 33% efficient to, you know, trying to get up to 35 to the, you know, and 40% was, um, was considered a stretch goal. Um, but with combined heat and power, we're able to locate uh, power sources close to their uh, uses, uh, particularly with, with uh, industrial customers that had thermal loads, and we're able to really increase the uh, the efficiency of those plants uh, by double. So instead of, you know, throwing away two thirds of the uh, fuel energy up the, the stack and into the, the cooling towers, we were we were using two thirds of the fuel and, you know, only wasting a third. So it was doubling the efficiency of those, those plants. And it could really help lower the cost of, uh, of power for, for industrial institutional customers. Just jumping to your your current role, can you talk about your portfolio of responsibilities as director of integrated resources? Sure. So the the director of integrated resources is responsible for managing the power supply portfolio. So that means identifying you know power purchase agreements that meet our uh, electric load needs uh, and managing the clean energy attributes around those you know renewable energy uh, certificates. Uh, we're also responsible for managing incentive programs that encourage customers to reduce uh, energy use and to electrify their end uses. Uh, we're also responsible for rate making uh, to ensure that the rates are encouraging the energy use behaviors uh, that help us manage the system. Um, and then we're we're also responsible for marketing, communications, billing, and customer service. So, and while all these things seem uh, somewhat distinct and separate. On first view, they the various market and regulatory forces are making them really interconnected. So what I mean by that is we, you know, we need to be able to forecast demand from our customers, um, particularly as they drive toward electrification of end uses, um, and that's causing demand to increase. So using incentive tracking, you know, when we give out incentives uh, to identify those customers that are electrifying, it's helping us see uh, what the uh, ramp up in load. So we get a, a leading indicator of the increasing load uh, from those incentives. Uh, and then, of course, customer engagement is very important. And, you know, nothing is more engaging with customers than a bill that you send every month. But we also try to send out a lot of other communications um, and really educate our customers about uh, the, their energy use and how it, you know, affects their cost, which is what they're really uh, focused on. And of course, we're rolling out different rate designs now, and you really need good customer engagement in order to to um, educate the customers so they're they're uh, they understand what what the new rate structures mean to their bills. So really, all these functions work together in concert um, to be sure we're including the voice of the customer in everything that we do. Can you provide any further level of specificity with respect to the the new rate designs that you guys are rolling out? Yeah, so we're we're evaluating. Obviously, we're trying to uh, affect behaviors by 
by uh, particularly around EV charging. Um, so we're we're looking at we have a time of use rate in place, um, but we're trying you know we're trying to increase participation in that rate, and we're also uh, looking at more real time pricing rates so that we can really send a transparent signal uh, to customers uh, when you know, when it costs us a lot to for them to charge their vehicles so that they're, you know, we've both got skin in the game in, in you know, avoiding the, the highest uh, uh, peak periods. In terms of power supply uh, planning, one question that, that I wanted to run by you was if you could provide some details on the utilities strategies for keeping energy rates low for customers. Yeah, sure. And I, I think this is one of the, you know, real benefits of um, public power. You know, we mm-hmm. our rates, particularly uh, in Massachusetts, if you compare us to to our investor owned utility neighbors, um, our customers are paying significantly less than than they are. And of course, our customers uh uh, don't always look at it that way, um, but you know, it is a uh, it is a benefit. To being here, and it, it certainly is an economic development tool as far as uh, you know the, the the town is concerned. Um, so we're you know we are committed to keeping rates as low as possible, and you know one um, one avenue that we're aggressively pursuing is in territory generation. So. of our cost structure is capacity and transmission costs. Um, So the more more, uh, generation we can build in territory, the lower the overall cost burden to our ratepayers is. Um, And so that's why we're we're trying to look at the geography of our territory. Um, It is mainly developed in suburban. So we are limited in terms of land to make in territory uh, generation possible. However, we are finding creative solutions, including putting solar arrays wherever we can uh, find a roof or a you know parking lot. And uh, we are in the process of engaging with um, some emerging technology providers in the hydrogen and uh, geothermal space to to try to build out that. We're also looking at battery storage to help offset some of the those uh, transmission and capacity costs that we're we're incurring, and then we're also um, aggressively pursuing some of the grant funding made possible by the Inflation Reduction Act. We um, we recently applied for a ten million dollar grant to optimize the electric grid uh, by installing smart switches and deploying advanced two way metering, and we utilized a state grant to install public uh, charging stations across our territory. So with respect to storage, um, are you, is the utility agnostic in terms of technologies or is it, you're looking at lithium ion or is it kind of too early to say at this point? Yeah, we, we are, we have one lithium ion battery um, that we deploy during peak periods. um, And, you know, that is the most commercially available now, but we are looking at the other uh, technologies as well. And we're looking at thermal storage as well. But it seems like if we if you want to go out today and buy a, a battery, it's most likely going to be a lithium ion battery. Right. Right. Okay. So just switching topics, I wanted to focus on environmental issues. Um, so in terms of my research and preparation for this interview, one thing that jumped out at me is the fact that um, your utility and other municipal light plants in Massachusetts have to comply with a climate law that sets various requirements that include getting to net zero emissions by 2050. Any details you can provide on this law and can you talk about how the utility is taking steps to meet the requirements set by the law? Sure. 
Sure. So um, in 2021, the Massachusetts climate bill was um, was signed by the governor um, and it did set emission standards for municipal light plants. Um, so it requires us to buy 50% of our power from non-carbon sources by 2030, um, 75% by 2040, and to be net zero by 2050. Um, you know, that is a, a a long enough runway that we think we can, you know, we can do that. Um, to avoid um, rate shock, we have been increasing our, you know, so it doesn't all happen at once. Um, in those increments, we have been increasing our non-carbon targets by 3% uh, a year, um, so that we have a, a, a steady ramp up to that goal of the 50% in 2030. We've increased our nuclear portfolio because that is considered non-carbon. Um, we're increasing it from 15 to 30% in the next five years. Um, and then in 2023, hydro is about 25% of our portfolio. And we've really uh, worked hard to increase our uh, hydro um, across the, the different geographies um, within New England. Um, so by 2023, uh, we're already at 60% non-carbon. We, uh, we, you know, and we, we don't necessarily um, take credit for all of that right now. Uh, we are, you know, we do sell some of our renewable energy certificates to help keep the rates as low as we can while being on that ramp rate. Um, so that helps, you know, that's helping our customers sort of adopt and adapt. Um, so in, we also have a renewable choice program where customers can uh, pay a little extra in their bill and we, we retire additional um, credits with that. Uh, we buy them and we, we retire them. And then we're also, you know, we are aggressively providing incentives for electric vehicles and heat pumps so that we encourage electrification. And even though that isn't part of the climate law, we think it should be included because we are, you know, we we are the ones picking up the, the clean electric load from those customers that are switching their end uses from gasoline and, and heating oil. And nuclear, correct me if I'm you said nuclear can be considered part of the meeting the requirements of the of the law yes yeah, so nuclear okay. is 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 non-carbon uh right. it's not renewable but it is non-carbon so it does meet the um you know the letter of the law and you know frankly i think it would be very difficult for us to achieve the goals that have been set without you know having nuclear in the portfolios right. I mean, and given your 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 experience in the region, do you? It's kind of a bigger picture question. Do you feel like maybe even perhaps beyond Massachusetts, does a region recognize the fact that nuclear needs to be part of the uh, suite of of solutions meeting requirements? I'm not sure we're at the point where where they fully recognize the benefit, but I think right. some of the resistance to existing nuclear has has fallen away. And the sort, the way that you know, in our conversations with some of the the climate activists, you know, we pointed, you've got to pick your 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 crisis. Um, mm -hmm. You know, do you want to? Right. Um, and and as I said in my opening, you know, the energy industry has always been about imperfect choices. Um, mm -hmm. So we've got to make those imperfect choices and make them work as well as we can for us. Yeah, I mean, it seems nationwide too. There's there's a growing recognition that. You know, once these plants are shut down, you can't just flip a switch and bring it back online, right? So, um, 
you know, I think in California, that's that's the case where they're they're looking at plants that I think were planned to go offline that are they're looking to keep online at least for the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, and I I think you know there might be possibilities to expand some of the existing nuclear sites that are left in in New England. Right. There are only two left, so okay. um, you know we're we're and we we have we do have a, a stake in one of those. Um, okay, which one is that? Uh, Seabrook. Okay. Yeah. All right. In New, that's in New Hampshire. Gotcha. Okay. And it's uh, owned in the majority is owned and operated by uh, Nextera. All right, Bill. Well, thanks so much for again for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. It's been a really illuminating conversation. Would love to have you back on the show uh, at some point in the future. Um, perhaps you know this time next year uh, we can revisit some of these topics and, and talk about other things that are going on uh, at the utility. Sure, I'd really like that. Thank you. All right, thanks again, Bill. Okay, have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now, which was produced by Julio Guerrero, graphic and digital designer at APPA. I'm Paul Champoli, and we'll be back next week with more from the world of public power.